0: Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Elia with the Spectrum Strategy Group, and I welcome you to today's episode. And I am thrilled to have uh, Varun here with me, who is a researcher on um, gender diversity and autism. And uh, if if some of you have seen, there was a recent uh, publish, I would say the end of September, on um on it being one of the largest studies so I really wanted to have this conversation and um, I'm excited to have you here with me but uh, as I usually you know like to say I think it's so much better when people introduce themselves you know yourself way better than I know you but I'm really grateful to have you here with me today so welcome
1: thanks so much Ilya. I you know thank you for having me and uh, I'm excited to be here to talk about uh you know this um Really interesting research, if I may say so myself, that, you know, we've been working on. So I am I'm a postdoc at the Autism Research Center in Cambridge, uh, where I work with uh, someone called Simon Baron Cohen. Uh, My training is in genetics primarily. So I primarily use, uh, you know, genetics as a tool to sort of understand um, some of the pressing questions uh, within mental health, not just autism alone. Uh, But then, you know, I I think I sort of fairly quickly realized that just studying genetics alone uh, is not really sufficient to answer any of these questions. And and so I think, you know, you want to sort of use genetics as a tool, uh, but alongside other things as well, alongside an environment and, you know, the social world that we all live in. So yes, so hence this sort of work, which has got no genetics, but is equally exciting
0: as well. Oh, great. Um, So it's funny. So I didn't know you worked with um, Simon Baron-Cohen. I actually have invited him to be a guest as well, Ah, talking about his new book, so um, we'll be doing that in March, so very excited. See, the worlds kind of always connect somehow. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, so I'm curious, given what you just said, um, what was the catalyst for doing this particular, you know, pick, picking this topic? It's It's been a topic, having worked with adults, uh, it's it's was sort of like a thread that we started noticing in the um, advocacy group that I worked for. And, you know, it was first, I guess I would say, to be perfectly honest, it was one of those things, no one was saying anything, but we were kind of say like thinking something, we're noticing a a trend here. And then parents were calling and asking questions, wanting more information. And frankly, most of us didn't, you know, that we couldn't say anything like definitively. We were like, well, we kind of tend to notice and (laughs) we use all these really vague, (laughs) vague kind of statements. And, you know, but, but, you know, I think our, our take was more from, working with clients was, you know, most of our folks were just kind of more open to being diverse and exploring more and and learning different things. In some ways, many have said, well, I was already kind of a little different anyway. And so, you know, I might as well embrace all of the difference Mm -hmm. and not try to, you know, hide more things than, you know, because society of what society says. So, so this was sort of this generic (laughs) sort of light conversation you know, script, I guess you could say we would have. And I think we still have. But, but this, when I saw this, I seriously stopped the article and I was like, oh, I have to read this. What is, what is this? So I'm really curious what led to um, you doing this type of research and choosing this topic. Because I know you do other types of autism research, yeah. obviously.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Great question. And, and, and you know what it is. I think you've described it perfectly well. Um, so I think this is something that's been known in the field for a reasonably long time i'd say uh, you know anecdotally you hear about many of these things and um, that's what we as researchers must do we must sort of take things that you know we hear from various people uh and then we need to sort of say put it through the usual empirical rigorous system and say you know what's the statistical truth behind this you know how how true is this so It's uh, the way I got into into this is quite interesting. Uh, I was at a debate. uh, I was um, uh, a member of the audience uh, where uh, they were talking about sex differences in the brain. Um, So Simon was there. Simon was uh, speaking uh, at the debate. This was, I think, in. 2019, you know, way before the pandemic, when we could all sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, mill around in crowds, (laughs) uh, travel around and all of that. Um, So uh, in this sort of conversation, uh, someone from the audience asked this question, you know, has anyone ever looked at um, um, sex differences in the brains of uh, folks who are transgender or gender diverse? Uh, or or the rates of autism uh, in folks who are transgender uh, and or gender diverse um, and it started with this one sort of innocuous question and, um, and then you know when we got back uh, next day we were like we actually have a bit of data that we can use to sort of try and see uh, address this question. Um, so I was aware of this, uh, but I hadn't personally given this particular topic much thought because, you know, I had my uh, nose uh, down in the world of genetics, uh, primarily up until this point. Um, so what we have really used over here is something called uh, convenience sampling. So uh, what, what, what I mean by that is that we haven't actually gone and collected samples or data to specifically address this question. But we had a whole bunch of data that's sort of lying around uh, where we asked about people's gender and or their sex uh, in various capacities. Uh, And in these sort of diverse different data sets, we also had information about whether they were autistic, whether they they were diagnosed as autistic. And in some of these data sets, we additionally had information about other mental health conditions uh, and um, information on self-reported autistic traits, um, and all of a sudden we realized that we are sitting on about five different data sets uh, with a mm-hmm. sample of over six hundred and fifty thousand, approximately. I think six hundred forty thousand. Oh wow! Um, That's great. And um, and what? Well, the the challenges which actually turned into an opportunity was that. Uh, these data were all collected very differently and you know they were mm-hmm. all uh, you know the way we asked people about their autism diagnosis if they were autistic or uh, the way we asked them about their gender what they identify as um or, or, or the autistic traits that we measured were all very very different in these different data sets um yeah so, you know, so so for us, the the we 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 realized that the story was quite convincing when regardless of these differences, you found very similar results. You know, so you know, showing that, you know, out there in the world, you can, you know, you can sort of measure these things however you want. And and then when you sort of see similar results across these different diverse data sets, we were like, oh yeah, that's that's pretty neat. Mm-hmm.
0: Great so you answered one of my questions was how many how many people so how did you go about going through all of that data that seems especially with that much yeah. <laughs> it seems like an overwhelming task so so how do you Right? How do you and I am not a researcher, but how do you normalize that data since it is it was collected in a variety of different ways? How would you? How do you normalize that so you, it's
1: useful for you for your for your question? Really? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So, uh, I think pretty early on we sort of realized that we can't, you know, we can't throw all the different data sets together. We we need to sort of analyze each of them separately, um, and um, so um. Uh, I am proficient in, well, proficient is a stretch, really. Uh, I know how to handle uh, reasonably well with a lot of Googling, uh, this sort of statistical language (laughs) called R, uh, which, you know, a lot of people use to sort of analyze their data. Um, So we started with the largest data set, uh, which came from uh, uh, a survey that people did as a part of this uh, program on this UK TV channel called Channel 4, Uh, and I think the program was called Are You Autistic or How Autistic Are You or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And this aired a few years ago, I think. I think it it aired in 2017, I want to say, or 2018, you know, thereabouts. Um, So we started with that. So we said, you know, this is the largest data set, Uh, you know, it's got its own limitations uh but let's analyze this data set first so you know put it through the usual sort of quality control paradigm where we sort of remove people who hadn't provided all the answers or uh, removed sort of people who we thought were repeat uh you know people who had sort of repeated answering the questionnaire and and, and things like that which we could sort of check mm. um we also removed people who were uh who were under 16 years of age because we wanted to deal exclusively with adults uh, for a number of reasons, just because, also because the other samples were primarily adult samples. And I, think, and I think the nature of gender diversity can potentially be quite different in adults, you know, when they've sort of lived sure. a certain number of years, and in children when they're still sort of figuring out themselves and, and, and the world around them. Uh, So we started with the largest of these data sets, um, and we got some results. Uh, And then we were like, you know, do these results replicate? Are they valid in other data sets? Um, So we had in-house, we had three other data sets. So we had a smaller data set from something called musicaluniverse.com, which had nothing to do with autism, but was about (laughs) people's interest in musical aptitudes, you know. Uh, What type of music do you like? Whatever music do you listen to? Which is great because it didn't have any of the other biases that some of these autism or gender-related data sets would have. So I think we had about 80,000 people from that. uh, And, you know, they had provided information about that diagnosis and their gender uh, identity. Um, And then we had two smaller but, you know, much more better phenotype data sets. So one was as a part of a genetic study called IMAGE, where we had actually asked people to provide a copy of the diagnostic report if they were autistic. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, Mm -hmm. in, in previous data sets, we just sort of asked them, are you autistic? Or if you have received a diagnosis of autism from, uh, from a, you know, qualified professional. But in this case, we actually asked them to provide a copy of the diagnostic report so we could sort of verify it. Uh, And also the sort of resolution we had in the, gender identity question was much better, you know, because we asked them about the sex assigned at birth and the sort of gender they identify with. Whereas in the previous um, uh, the previous two data, it was primarily about their gender. Uh, and, you know, we didn't have this sort of concurrent information about the sex they identified, um, uh, sex six, they were assigned at birth. And finally, we had, at the you know, during revision, we managed to get access to a final fifth data set um, which was a part of a cohort in the Netherlands called Lifelines Cohort. Uh, and this was quite different from the other data sets in that you know these were people who joined this cohort, you know a couple of several years ago and they you know, they were a, an older population, healthier population. and you know, this must have been at a time when perhaps, uh, there there wasn't too much of awareness about gender diversity, you know, there's greater awareness about gender diversity now. So, you know, very different data sets, very different recruitment strategies, very different ways by which we ask them about, you know, autism and, and their gender. Uh, and we find similar results across all five data sets.
0: That's awesome. And so, so what was your, so you say, you know, similar findings. So let's talk about those. What, what, what's where, what were the points that started to feel like, Oh, wow, we're noticing this or we're, you know, here, here are the trends that we're starting to see. What, what were those?
1: Yeah, that's right. So I think, I think the clearest trend that we saw was that um, folks who had uh, indicated that they were transgender or gender diverse, Uh, on these surveys, we're much more likely to be autistic. So to receive an autism diagnosis, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, we know within these data sets and, you know, on in other sort of um, uh, epidemiological studies that uh, folks who are, uh, who cisgender males are more likely to be diagnosed as autistic than cisgender females. And, and, you know, that sort Mm -hmm. of fairly established, fairly well known. And there's, uh, you know, typically there's, uh, based on current diagnostic practices, There are there's a ratio of anywhere between uh, three cisgender females to cisgender males, or four, uh, sorry, three cisgender males to every one cisgender female, or, or four cisgender males to every one um, uh, cisgender female. But with, uh, with um, transgender and gender diverse individuals, we, we, we saw that the ratio was much higher so anywhere between, I think the number was six to twelve times uh, the 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 odds of being diagnosed as autistic compared to cisgender males and females combined, and that's that's a sizable gap. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sure. was very interesting. That was a very striking result. Um, and 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 you know, I must say, you know, off the bat that we are not the first people to demonstrate this. You know, there have been loads of studies that have sort of demonstrated this. But I think the difference is that the previous studies were done in relatively small sample sizes and Mm -hmm. or they focused on um, um, uh, children primarily who are referred to gender dysphoria clinics or gender identity clinics, which is quite different from yeah. adults who indicate on on you know on on a survey that they don't identify as male or female or you know they mm-hmm. they, they identify as transgender or gender diverse, so yeah, so that was quite striking, uh, striking findings, robust findings, uh, but in line with what we had seen in the literature before
0: right right and so like so again i know we said sometimes we'll digress um so that 4 to 1 number that we hear so much right about cisgender males to cisgender females you know there's so much i guess there's a little bit of talk around why that might be the case i think many people feel that it's not that women are not uh autistic you know less than males um it's just that we're not necessarily have the right tools or we, they don't present the same way or, you know, whatever that is. Um So I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on that, since there is such this, bi- this big gap in this particular um study to what we've been hearing, you know, for the last 15 years or so. Um, why do you think that there's that gap um, with males to females in our traditional three to one or four to one number? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, that's, That's one of those open questions out there in the field. So let me sort of start with what we know so far before I sort of dive into what I think might be happening. (laughs) So uh, there's a nice study, uh, looms et al, um, somewhere, I think it came out in 2017 or something like that, or 2018, which showed that um, if you were to take um, if you were to diagnose people as being autistic based on not standard instruments alone, but you know based on additional sort of clinical information and being aware that you know, perhaps autistic males and autistic females might present very differently, then that sort of ratio uh, becomes uh, much more, much narrower. It's not a broad number, it's not a big number, so you know people were talking about five is to one, or, you know, back, you know, several decades ago, people were talking about seven is to one and things like that. But, you know, mm-hmm. it sort of goes down to 3.3 is to one. So so there is that bit that is there. Uh, the other thing that we know is that, uh, as you rightly pointed out, many of these diagnostic tools uh, have a bit of a bias in what sort of questions they use to sort of diagnose someone as autistic. And uh, one particular area that has caught my attention is sensory difficulties. Um, so based on um, based on or or I, I shouldn't call it difficulties, but you know sensory hypo hypersensitivities sen- sensory perception. Mm-hmm. Um, so based on self-report measure, uh, so usually in many of these sort of self-report measures, both in the general population and in autistic individuals, uh, cisgender men tend to sort of score more towards the autistic side than cisgender women. So they tend to sort of score higher on these measures of autistic traits. Uh, the the uh, exception to this rule is with sensory difficulty. So self, self-reported mm-hmm. sensory hypersensitivities, where regardless of whether someone is autistic or not, women tend to score higher. Uh, uh, cisgender women tend to score higher than cisgender men. And if you go back and look at many of these uh, you know, these sort of diagnostic tools and these sort of screening tools, you sort of realize that the questions that pertain to sensory aspects of autism, sensory stimulation or sensory perception, are quite um, sparse. You know, you probably have like two, two or three different items. Uh, so you're not necessarily sort of tapping into that at all. Um, and, and we know that in DSM, so the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual, mm-hmm. Sensory aspects of autism were only quite recently included in the latest right. iteration of DSM. So again, you know, we know that there are things out there that we need to try and address. We need to sort of plug those gaps where we, you know, where we sort of say that, look, you know, autism may present quite differently between, you know, men and women, especially if, you know, these, uh, these uh, folks who are getting a diagnosis slightly later in life, you know. Perhaps in children, you may be able to pick up some of these things. Um, And and tied to that, we also know that, and there's sort of really nice epidemiological studies in countries like Denmark and Sweden, where they show that uh, the rates of autism, so females tend to get diagnosed as autistic much later on in life than males. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as you go further along, you know, life trajectory, the sort of gap gets narrower and narrower, the sex difference gets narrower and narrower. So all of this is the social side of things. But, you know, uh, when I sort of think about these, maybe it's my own biases. I am apologetic mm-hmm. by training. But, you know, I think of ourselves as, um, you know, human beings who have a, you know, sort of a biological, uh, I wouldn't really call it a blueprint, but perhaps some sort of a framework, a scaffold, if you will. and And, you know, there are sex differences in this sort of scaffold. And you take the scaffold and you put them in an environment, in a social environment. And the way, and, and that scaffold will operate very differently in very different environments, you know, and environment is not a static thing. Environment is, mm-hmm. you know, is constantly changing. And it's, it's an ongoing process right from when we were born, you know, the social stimuli that we receive, the sort of biases that we receive, the stigma that's there in the environment that we sort of grew up in. Uh, you know, the social pressures that we have, all of that together. So uh, I also think that there may be a possibility that intrinsic uh, biological factors may also have a role to sort of, um, uh, to contribute to this. And this is not perhaps just uh, exclusive to autism per se. So for example, Mm -hmm. many neurodevelopmental conditions which are diagnosed when someone is a child um, you know, tend to have a bit of a male bias. Whereas, if you look at conditions like schizophrenia or, or, or depression, or you know, many of these other sort of conditions, where typical diagnosis is a bit later on in life, uh, the sort of bias is a bit different, and perhaps in some instances, I think more females tend to be diagnosed with some of these conditions uh, compared to compared to males. So, so. The answer is, it's complex. Uh, The things that (laughs) (laughs) we can and we should plug are the social things. We need to create better diagnostic tools. We need to sort of ensure that there's greater awareness. We need to sort of go out, especially to autistic women who are diagnosed later on in life and ask them, you know, what was your childhood like? You know, what were the things that you felt growing up? And then go back to our screening tools and ask, are we accurately covering that? Uh, You know, are we sort of covering these girls who are growing up, who may be sort of camouflaging or masking or feeling social pressures to sort of act in a certain way? Are we, you know, taking that into account? So that's my fairly long answer. (laughs) No, I think it's. it's
0: yeah i think it's it's really important because you know as we we start this conversation as gender diversity but it does you know it it does overlap with this other piece where um you know historically i know my son was diagnosed when he was 9 so he also was older than many children now and he's an adult now. But, um, you know, there was this number four to one, four to one. And then, you know, you always ask yourself, why? Why is that? But then in doing this work and in being his advocate and being an educator, you know, as a as a female identifying person, I think to myself, wow, I've there are some things here that I might want that <laughs> I might want to look at <laughs> for myself and you know maybe labeled something else you know and I've I've spoken to many women about this and it's no no it's it's anxiety or it's depression or it's you know like they label all these other exactly. things or you know just get over it maybe sometimes um, <laughs> and and maybe it's not that and again you know we know autism is the spectrum so who you know how much it impacts your day-to-day life, of course, varies from person to person. Um, but these are the things we start thinking about. And the more I speak to people like yourself and other guests that I have, you know, all there's always these, these little moments that I go, oh, wow, that's a really interesting, um, a, an interesting awareness. And you know, I'm hoping this kind of information can help people think a little bit more. Um, and and also, I think this can be a, an uncomfortable and scary topic, especially for, for families um, and for educators, because I think many are, are not sure how to approach or how to have some of these conversations. They're difficult anyway, right? <laughs> so, you know, so now we have this added layer. So I I hope um, in this type of work to be able to minimize some of that, you know, anxiety. And and where do you see, like, where do you see this going now, going forward? You know, because I think the community itself and as we've kind of chatted on the side there are so many people young adults now in their 20s and you know early 30s very open about their you know autistic experience schooling employment and yes sexuality and relationships and gender identity like all of that and it feels like a real gift for for us to be able to have insight and for people to be willing to share that. Um, but we've opened up this, right, this box. We can't close that now. So <laughs> so where do we go? What do you think we go from here?
1: Yeah, uh, well, I think certain directions that I see many of these things going, and I think it, 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 it should go in the direction, is greater advocacy by autistic folks, you know, and that's, you know, and that is a tremendous gift uh, to everyone, and especially to us as researchers, you know, because I think what ends up happening is that, um, you know, mind you, this is not without it's it's not always easy conversations, as you said. Sort of, no, no sure. you know, And and uh, at the end of the day, different people have very very different aspirations, all very sort of valid, equal important aspirations, and the enormous diversity within the autism spectrum would also mean that there's an enormous diversity of aspirations. Uh, You know, for instance, instance, I know that there are some autistic people who perhaps aren't very comfortable with uh, genetics. And, you know, and I completely understand that because uh, genetics research does have a sordid history and we, we can't and shouldn't make that go away. And we need to sort of discuss that. And we need to ask, you know, what should we do? How should we use genetics? Uh, and what, uh, what is the autistic community comfortable with when, when we're talking about genetics research? Um, and I think that's great. So, you know, for, for instance, uh, uh, what, what this is doing is that it's sort of bringing to the fore a whole bunch of research areas, which were, you know, till about quite recently, fairly uh, under research, you know, uh, for multiple reasons. Including because, you know, autism as a concept has also evolved, uh, including because, you know, funders also need to be told that these are important problems that we need to fund, uh, you know, that we need to have research on. So, you know, some of the many topics that you mentioned about, you know, things like uh, employment, aging, you know, what ends up happening to many of the folks who are perhaps in their 30s or, you know, 40s, you know, as they get older, you know how does autism impact uh, their uh, aging experience? You know, there's some unique challenges. Uh, but equally, I think the other thing that we, um, and it's something that I'm personally interested in, is uh, the concept of co-occurring conditions. You know, we we, we now know that, uh, you know, there's so many different co-occurring conditions. Uh, you know, there are these sort of areas where there's some autistic people you know, excel in that. You know, we, I'm not sort of going to go into the details. Uh, and, and, and these have almost sort of uh, perhaps become a cliche at times in sort of social media. But they're also sort of genuine areas where, um, which uh, people aren't aware of. And one particular example is hypermobility or, or this particular condition called EDS. Uh, I'm not hmm. going to attempt to pronounce it, but I think it's <laughs> Erler Stano syndrome. Um, yes, yes, I have. Yes, I have yeah. heard this. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you know, it's it's an under-researched aspect of autism. It co-occurs quite a bit with autism, and um, it is a particular condition that can cause considerable distress to autistic folks, hmm. um, and 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 gut difficulties, you know, and sleep difficulties, and. And, and these are all the things where I think uh, we need a lot more research on, uh, where we need to go back and ask what are the specific aspects of this that autistic people have difficulties in, um, and then try and attempt to sort of, you know, address those, you know, as best as we can. So, you know, one of my favorite examples is, uh, is this example of cut difficulties that, you know, a lot but not many autistic individuals have. And, uh, and, and these sort of gut difficulties you know are they're, it, it, they're, they come in many different forms and shapes and sizes and things like that. And the underlying and, and the thing is, uh, when we sort of measure these, we sort of measure them based on questionnaire, you know questionnaires about pain or like stool samples and things like that, um, they may sort of look as though they're quite sort of similar, but the underlying causes of some of these things can be very, very different. Uh, so for mm-hmm. example, you know, in some cases, changing the diet can do wonders. In some cases, it can be tied to your sleep. You know, if you don't sleep properly, your entire sort of homeostasis is disrupted. And, you know, that sort of causes cut difficulties. Uh, but in some cases, for example, um, some autistic, a very, very small fraction of autistic individuals carry mutations in this particular gene called CHD8. And we know from animal models where we sort of mutate that particular gene in zebrafish, so it's an animal model. And the cool thing about zebrafish is that they are translucent. So you can actually see what is happening mm. inside the body. And uh, they sort of mutated gene in zebrafish and they have sort of tagged uh, tagged aspects of the gut with something called uh, green fluorescent protein. So we have sort of had a fluorescent food pellet and you can see that the fluorescent food pellet passes through the gut at a much slower rate in these Hmm. animals than in animals who don't have that mutation. So uh, I I can imagine that this can cause a whole lot of gut difficulties for individuals who who have these mutations, but the causes are very, very different, even though on the surface, they may look similar. So these are the things I think that we really need to try and address, uh, you know, as much as we can.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, you bring up so many important points and we could probably do a topic on each one (laughs) one of those um, because, yeah, these are all, you know, challenges that many of our community face. And when we, you know, you know, oftentimes, sometimes the answer is, what's the cause? And sometimes it's, well, does the cause matter? We just need to worry about how to address, you know, how to address it. But sometimes the cause is important in addressing how, you know, a a strategy or using a tool or some sort of support, if we know the why that can make that a little bit easier. And I think that's what's what in doing this type of research, we can better understand the why and then we can better implement tools to help people. Um, otherwise, sometimes, and sometimes we do do this, is we just throw things at, right, at a problem and we say, well, let's see, how, let's see if it works. And sometimes we're right and sometimes we're not. Um, but I think uh, this is really valuable and I look forward to seeing where, where all of this goes. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. This has been, you know, fantastic.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, take care and and I'll talk to you soon.
1: You too. All right. Bye. All right. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh. And if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching, and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com. And when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.